Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And the show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. I'm really excited and enthused to have Dr. Alexander Norbash on the show today. Dr. Alexander Norbash is the chair of radiology at UC San Diego. He is also the associate vice chancellor for diversity for the whole campus. Really enthused and excited to have him on. I'm not going to steal his thunder. Dr. Norbash, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I guess, you know, start us off and take us back to where it all started. Tell us about the series of events that have gone on in your life that have led you to become the person you are today. So just love to hear about your origin story. Thank you. Um, Anthony, I am uh, the son of immigrants. My mom and dad left Iran very early, before 1960, actually moved west, and I grew up in a small town in northwest Missouri. My father was a town doc, and my mom was a school teacher. So um, at a very early stage, they kind of instilled in me um, a, a sense of value and appreciation for healthcare mm-hmm. for education. And so what I do now is a direct extension of you know, my background and what they, the value that they instilled in me. So I, I, I grew up in that environment, and... Um, I ended up going to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, a six-year medical school, which at the time was very inexpensive, and it was the state school, and I got a great education. Then I went to Pittsburgh, where I did my radiology residency, and um, at that point in time, I got very interested in a very technical part of our field. It's called interventional neuroradiology, and it deals with treating mainly strokes and aneurysms using minimally invasive techniques that are catheter-based, similar to what cardiologists do in the heart. We try to do a lot of that stuff in the head. And so I then went to Stanford to get the additional training to be able to do that. And I stayed on as faculty there for five years. Uh, By that point in time, my wife had finished her ear, nose, and throat training. We decided to relocate to Boston. And we lived in Boston for 17 years. And while I was in Boston, I initially did a lot of experimental work uh, dealing with my subspecialty. And then I got additional management responsibilities because I felt like I could have a greater scope of positive influence, hopefully, by having more administrative responsibilities. I became section head of neuroradiology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and then I became chair of radiology at Boston University, where I functioned in that capacity for 11 years. Um, I had an opportunity there to start working in the diversity space, which I found to be very gratifying, emotionally gratifying and fruitful. Again, being the son of immigrants, I think it's a natural place for me to see an opportunity to kind of grow. And um, then I decided that after my kids left home, uh, that it would be timely for my wife and me to look for other opportunities, maybe moving someplace a little bit warmer. And so I've been in San Diego for nearly four years now. And again, here, I, my job has several components. One component is managing the radiology department to make sure that we provide the best care we possibly can uh, that uses innovative techniques on every single patient who we face. Um, I also have to obviously develop the professional careers of my faculty by helping them grow. Uh, And uh, I also am involved in an entrepreneurialism program that creates an incubation possibility for students from engineering, medicine, and business um, to learn about concepts, work as teams, and create new businesses. 
Norbash, this is great to hear about your background, to hear about the upbringing, the values that your parents instilled in you. And obviously you can see that has not just manifested, but really uh, exponent, like compounded upon itself across the different dimensions of health from uh, innovation, entrepreneurism, um, diversity, all the different dimensions that you're touching, including cutting edge medical procedures and radiology procedures that you're doing. It's super fascinating. I have about 20 questions I want to ask you at one time, but I'm going to focus on just one for now, which is, you know, you're touching so much right now. What, what's the one thing in health that has you most fixated or most captivated right now and has most of your passion these days? I just love to hear about your one top thing. I think, I think the one top thing is uh, the range of possibilities in terms of change that are mm -hmm. going to benefit patients directly. And so I think from our perspective in healthcare, we've, we've, we've created products and we've created experiences that don't really capitalize on the patient perspective as much as it should. And I think that's kind of a function of working in the diversity space also. It's realizing how personalized care really needs to be. Because, you know, after all physicians, I mean, we, we, we're not just uh, engineers. We're not just treating uh, a mechanical substrate. We're, we're dealing with human beings. Mm -hmm. We need the human beings to be comfortable and accepting. We need them to be in a positive frame of mind. We need them to feel as though the communication is enabled. And, and that's something that I think we can do a much better job with. I mean, whether it's understanding how patients see their results or how compassionate the caregiver is when the caregiver is talking to the patient. And Again, my observation is obviously not unique. It's not an original thought. We actually here at UC San Diego just secured a $100 million grant uh, from a philanthropist here in San Diego to look at how we in healthcare can be more compassionate. And I think that compassion reflects in a different way of engaging with patients um, and a different way of communicating and conversing. So I think that's going to be really big. It'll also help us identify problems more effectively because if we're more compassionate, we're not going to be fixating on which problems are going to generate the greatest amount of revenue for us as individuals or as health systems. If we're really more compassionate, we're going to think about what has the greatest influence on society in a positive and beneficial way. And maybe we'll start looking at things like homelessness mm -hmm. uh, or so the social situation that children face at home or gun violence, or a number of other issues where we as physicians typically don't get into the conversation, but mm -hmm. maybe we should be part of the conversation because maybe we can be part of the cure. So mm -hmm. I, think, I think that social dynamic is going to be a really big deal uh, over the next couple of decades. That's my opinion. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's, it's really fascinating. You know, we've never really talked about uh, compassion, the processes, technologies, empathy, the empathy is there, right? But to intersect providers and payers with the community, social determinants of health and with this, this focus of compassion and, and kindness, right? The underlying element of it is kindness and really love for the community, authentic love, you know, for the community and compassion. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. As you know, we're in a value-based market now and the intersection of social determinants of health with uh, value base is there. So we, we now realize all that zip code is more important than genetic code. And we have to have, you know, a really strong effort and compassion. So just reflecting back on what you're saying here, I'm just thinking out loud. Do you have some examples of some of the things you'd like to see or some of the things that you're doing maybe personally that, that or some processes that you're seeing out there? Some of like compassion and action is, I guess, what I'm curious about if you're seeing 
anything out there like community outreach programs, compassion programs, or getting access to, um, you know, reaching out to patients more dynamically. Just curious if you're seeing anything out there and in, in, uh, more, more tactics out there. Well, so what we're doing is we're trying to make sure that on the scheduling side that we're responsive to patients' needs rather than uh, being a little bit more, you know, one-way communication, telling them when they can show up, where they can show up, trying to understand mm. what kind of uh, materials can we mobilize that are educational materials that will tell people more about their disease or about their testing process. Mm-hmm. We have a MyCharts portal now that we're really optimizing to make sure that patients have access to the results of their tests um, and, and that it's done, you know, in plain English. So, so there are a lot of things that are happening simultaneously. Um, we're still, you know, I think all of us are suffering from this rubric of being mindful of where the dollars are coming from and how investments are made. Um, but I think what's happening is we're simultaneously seeing pay- payment systems that are looking at patient experience as a determinant of direct payment also in terms of survey results, whether it's press gain or any other kind of survey mechanism. And so that's not just compensating the health system in a different way as a fractional approach, um, mm-hmm. but it's also something that is trickling down the departments into centers and to institutes. And so there are individuals who believe in this and, and want to push it and want to do it. And there are others who understand that this, this is an unavoidable future and it's going to be part of you know, their area of familiarity and their jargon. And so it's happening. It really is happening. It's, it's happening slowly. I would love for it to happen a little more quickly, but I'm grateful to see that at least it has the attention of the payers and of the regulators and finally of the health systems also. I love it. I love it. Now, uh, Dr. Norbash, this is really great and fascinating to kind of hear, you know, how you're seeing this from the ground level and, and you know, ushering in these innovations. And it's, it's setting this cells ourselves up for an interesting future. Uh, two dimensions of the work that you do today and you have been doing, um, you mentioned earlier about some interesting uh, innovations on the radiology side for stroke patients Stroke patients, and being able to un- uncover, um, you know, better treatments and be- better understanding of where someone's at if they've had a stroke. Can you talk a little bit about that on, on you know, what, um, some of the results you're seeing or some of the innovation that you're seeing there to be able to, uh, to help with diagnosis, uh, you know, from a stroke perspective or maybe some of the treatments. And then on a follow to that, I don't want to forget my second question on, on that is obviously you're the vice chancellor, associate vice chancellor of diversity for the whole campus. Diversity is starting to come up big time, but I'm curious on the technical side of the radiology procedure of what you're doing there and, and, and the innovation that's happening there. Certainly. So if, if I may, let me uh, kind of talk about four things in stroke treatment that have been really revolutionary. <clears throat> so one is that, you know, in the past, um, we would put a catheter into the arteries of the brain and we would embed the tip of that catheter in a clot. We would um, inject a material that would cause that clot to dissolve. And we met with mixed success in those instances. The mm-hmm. clot didn't always dissolve effectively. Often it would dissolve, but we didn't have the desired reanimation or improvement in the patient's condition. And so the tools weren't that great. Over the course of the past eight to 10 years, we have these new tools that are combinations of stents and retrievers. They open up and we can pull the clot gently out of the blood vessel and out of the body. Mm. Those stent retrievers have increased our ability to recanalize or reopen blood vessels it has done a dramatic job of improving that. So that's one technical advancement, which is a result of material science and engineers and physicians working together to design the best 
products. They could mm-hmm. be. So that's one giant revolution. Another giant revolution is the way we're using CT scanners and MR scanners now to look at stroke. We now have a way um, based on how we actually do these studies of looking at the information in a post-processed way. So you're looking at an MR or a CT scan and you know when you should stop and not do anything because you're not going to help the patient or you might actually make them accidentally worse. And we now know when they're going to do better. And it's a matter of identifying not only the stroke, but knowing what is absolutely irreversible. If a stroke is irreversible, there's no point in doing a complicated procedure, fishing a clot out of the blood vessel in the brain. Mm. You know that that could bleed and be even more dangerous as a result of the cure. So our CTs and MRs now show us on our smartphones those images as soon as they pop up after their, their, their post-process with a high degree of clarity and it gives us a stop or go decision. So that's revolutionary. So one revolution is the stent treat with the tool. The second revolution is knowing when to treat. The third revolution is how we work as teams. We have neonatal, I'm sorry, we have uh, neurologic intensive care units now, and we have stroke neurologists working with neurosurgeons, working with radiologists all together. And in the past, that wasn't the case. We didn't have the right construct for how the various individuals work together to Mm. understand how the team basis for treatment can actually be dramatically better. And then the fourth thing we have now, which I think is a big plus, is we have a common understanding of how we set up stroke centers and Mm. what the ingredients need to be. And now we have primary stroke center designation available where you have MRI around the clock, you have somebody who does those interventional cases where they can actually pull the clot out of the blood vessels because not everywhere has those. And so now the ambulances know where to go because a very complex certifying process, which is the same thing that trauma centers have been doing for years. To be a primary trauma center means something. Now to be a primary stroke center also means something. Mm-hmm. So I think those four revolutions, of what, it's the tool, it's using imaging to know when to stop and go. It's working as effective teams together across disciplines and knowing where the best care can be delivered geographically. I think that's going to change how we see stroke. And mm. stroke is going to be seen as a treatable disease. We're going to bring the same revolution to the table that cardiology did with acute myocardial infarctions a couple of decades ago. Mm. Mm, I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating what you're doing in this space. And it's it's very innovative. You know, when you've heard about uh, radiology and strokes and conditions like this talked about in the past, even just like three years ago, what's what's interesting is uh, the level of sophistication that you're you're mentioning now was just not there. And now it's 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 in action. It it's it sounds I'm not a doctor, but, you know, obviously I've like most people have had family members or friends uh, fall victim to stroke. And so it's really such a blessing to hear that some of these new innovations are there for diagnosis, for treatment, uh, for identification. Um, Dr. Norbash, in a a little bit of a contrast, obviously, uh, you know, went into the weeds here with some of the technology side and innovation side of what you're doing here. I'd love to hear a little bit about diversity and how you think about diversity, because I know you're, you're the associate vice chancellor uh, for diversity for the whole campus and diversity in health, social determinants of health, compassion, you know, it all kind of goes hand in hand. I just love to hear a little bit about, you know, what your focus is there and in your mindset uh, and the, 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 the mindset that you're bringing in that space. 
it's it's um, you know it, on first glance it may not be intuitive, but what, you know, the more you think about it, the more it makes sense because mm-hmm. diversity is about understanding how you value each individual, mm-hmm. uh, understanding how you treat each individual, so that you can optimize their contributions to society and their sense of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, with every individual patient, we're also trying to optimize our understanding of how to make them the most comfortable and provide them with the most culturally sensitive care that allows them to recover as quickly as they possibly can and be the most productive member of society that they can be. So when, when we're looking at initiatives across the campus, there are a number of initiatives that we're involved in that, that will make a certain amount of sense intuitively. One is uh, campus-wide surveys. So we can understand how each person feels not only about themselves, but also about their environment and whether the environment provides them with the tools um, to undertake reparative action or to fix things when there are problems. So a survey tool across the whole campus, that's something very powerful that that we use that's been very advantageous. You will find that individuals have disagreements sometimes, and those disagreements can bubble over into feuds or bullying. Mm. Another thing we've done is we have over 50 certified mediators that we've trained on the campus. And when there are instances of disagreements, people know that they can pull in the mediators and the mediators will try their best to make things right. And to know that you have a number of individuals out there who use due process and a formalized approach to reconciling disagreements, it creates a campus and an environment that ascribes to civility Mm. and graciousness. And so again, People behave better towards each other, hopefully. They understand there are resources to reconcile disagreements. And so things don't go beyond a certain, you know, red line. So that's really, really important. Or another issue that we're uh, really focusing on has to do with advocacy networks. And one of the things that we know is that we live in a misogynistic society where women do not have an equal voice because of the patriarchal systems that we've set up. Well, Who can reverse that trend? It's not just the women who can reverse that trend, but it could be male allies, individuals who are now sensitized to this, understand something about microaggressions, understand something about how you deal with bias, and they have generated in their own mind a set of bias interrupters. So when they see misbehavior, they call people in a reasonable fashion to task in a non-confrontational way reminding them of how they can be their better selves and how they can contribute to a better society. So advocacy networks are another example of something that's really, really important. In order to create an environment where we appreciate everybody, we cannot simply advocate for our own sector of diversity. Mm -hmm. We have to understand the need for pluralism and the need to appreciate every single individual in the, in the environment. And in order to do that, we have to be committed to helping each other. And ultimately, that's what we in the diversity space are trying to do. I love it. I love it. No, it's, it's great and so true. And I appreciate you breaking it down because it's not there. There is a, there is a framework and a structure to, to thinking of this and I appreciate you laying it out, you know, because sometimes there's a lot of people that focus on diversity, but some of these, some of these, um, you know, focuses are sometimes, you know, competing with each other. And so, uh, it's great to great and refreshing to hear that the foundation of your work here is, uh, is grounded in a really good, good, good mindset. Um, Dr. Norbash, um, some of the things that we've been talking about here, innovations, entrepreneurism, uh, radiology treatments, innovations in, in the radiology space, uh, diversity, all are setting ourselves up for a really interesting future. 
tell me a little bit about what that optimistic future looks like. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about the future of health, according to uh, Dr. Norbash. So what I'm hoping, I'm hoping for two or three things. Mm-hmm. The first is I'm hoping that we address disparities in care. Mm. We're more mindful of what happens. I mean, here in San Diego, there are two zip codes that are separated by 15 miles with a 20-year life expectancy difference. Mm. Uh, that, that's not something that I think is beneficial for any of us. You, you create layers in society. You create discontentment. You create uh, individuals who are dispossessed. That's not where we want to be. So I think we're going to have greater equity in terms of the delivery of healthcare and the disparities in healthcare are going to decrease. I think we're going to be more mindful of genomics um, and how we implement preventive care in a more effective way that's individualized. Mm. So I think that's going to happen at an early age. And so early age preventive health care by changing the way children are looking at their own health care, that's going to kick in in the next five or 10 years uh, in a big way. And I think automation and the measurement of quality and value is also going to happen very easily. We're going to have a lot of things that happen automatically in terms of when we're called in, what kinds of tests were done, and we're going to synchronize the delivery of healthcare so there's a greater consistency and an understanding of how, from big data, we derive best practices and how we deploy them. So that's going to be a transformational change for our entire society. The future is going to be brilliantly bright, and I think we are some of those elements that are going to create that bright future for us. I love it. I love now. I love your vision of, of health in the future. I, I support it heavily and, you know, really hope to see us get there. And I believe we will. And, and I appreciate you laying that out uh, super clear. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be in health. Um, I, my last, my very last question is more along the lines for our listeners. And if you would like them to engage with you or reach out to you directly, what would be a good way to do so? Um, well, so, um, the easiest way is probably to email me, anorbash, A-N-O-R-B-A-S-H at UCSD.edu. And, um, I, you know, it's all about the wisdom of crowds. Every one of us lives a life full of experiences and rich perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the only way for us to grow as a society is to share those perspectives with each other in safe spaces where we can learn, where we can learn one from the other. And so... I look forward to hearing from your listeners and and I look forward to enabling some of those solutions and I look forward to growing uh, through this conversation. So thank you so much, Anthony. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And and thank you for for coming on and peeling off time to do this, to share your upbringing, your experiences, your origin story, your work that you're doing in the various different spaces uh, of health. And most importantly, your vision of health in the future that your work is, is setting a great foundation for. So I just wanted to say, Thank you for being on the show and thank you for making time. This was great. My pleasure. Have a great day, Anthony. You too. Thank you.